Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and where by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace and in kindness and toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Last Sunday was the New York City Marathon. And for those who participated in the marathon, maybe had talked with their coworkers in the past that they were training, likely got questions this last week. Uh, one question for those who may be not runners or competitive athletes is simply, did you finish? Uh, to, to run a marathon is itself impressive. And the kind of person that asks, did you finish, will likely be pretty impressed with, uh, with a lot of what you may answer. You may say, I finished, but it took me six hours. I was dying. I stopped at a bench for 20 minutes and took a nap. Uh, and yet the person at the end would be overwhelmed by, but you ran 26 miles. That's amazing. And even if you said, actually, I sat down on the bench and then I couldn't get off. This was mile 15. I never finished. There would still be this sense of fit, running 15 miles is remarkable. Who does that? But because this is New York, you also get another kind of question, which is not, did you finish, but did you qualify for Boston? So there are some people that, that sort of just assume as a baseline, of course you finished. Like who would go on social media and let people know you were going to run in it if you were not confident that you would complete it? So, so I'm just going to assume that, that, you're, that you had finished this, but, um, but how did you do? That's, that's what we want to know. How did you do? And look, nobody was expecting you to run it in two hours, not because it's not possible, because we know it is possible, but no judgment for not hitting two hours. Uh, but don't tell me it took more than two hours and 45 minutes. Uh, and, and that's the sort of environment many of us live and breathe. The competition is good, hard work, having goals, uh, having aspirations is fine. But there's something that becomes a little bit unhealthy um, with, with how we're relating of, of always trying to measure up and find out where we are in our standing. And so it's one thing to ask somebody who chooses to run a marathon how they did. Uh, but that, that creates a culture where a question, what did you do this weekend? You wind up feeling like you need to answer it with similar expectations. There's no right or wrong answer for what you did this weekend. So just say what you did. Uh, what did you do this weekend is a relational question. It's a get to know you question. It's just a catching up on how you're doing. But if your answer is, I stayed in bed all day Saturday, all day Sunday. I had three big bags of Doritos. 
and I watched 13 hours of Korean dramas. Then on Monday, when they say, what did you do this weekend? Uh, why not just say that? And in your impulse to be truthful, you may say it, but it will come out a little bit more like, you know, with daylight savings last week, I uh, kept waking up early thinking that I would get another hour of work. And by the end of the day, you still put in your 12 or 13 hours. And so when Saturday came, I just, I prioritized self-care. So that's what I did. What did you do this weekend? I ran 26.2 miles. And that's when you think, I'm so glad I did not mention Doritos in the way that I told the story of what I did this weekend. And so, so because so many people function in that kind of environment, um, Ephesians 2.10, God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. The word good is there. God wants us to do things, and he wants our lives to be good. And this should be something that excites us. What good could we be doing? How could we be thriving? And yet, Bible readers throughout the ages, and especially in a place like New York, look at this and they think, how am I supposed to perform for the Lord? So this verse about God creating, uh, preparing in advance things for us to do, um, stirs in us a number of things. One is the, have I done enough that God is pleased with me that I currently have standing? How am I doing in relation to other Christians? Am I hanging out with the better Christians or the worst Christians? Uh, th there's a byproduct of how we think that's actually foreign to the, the, the mindset that we're meant to have. And, and, and the book of Ephesians is inviting us into life with Christ, saying, join your life with Christ, and that will reform your whole identity. It'll, it'll put new life in you. And, and one of the things it will do is it will produce fruit in your life like good works. And so the passage is clear. You're not saved by your works. You're not to brag about your works. But it also, therefore, doesn't mean that doing good is irrelevant. It's part of this new life that you get to live. And so today, I, I want to lead us toward verse 10. That's going to be the focus. Uh, last week, uh, Tim brought us through verses 1 to 9 with the focus on grace. I want us to land looking at good works, but I am going to uh, take us through there so that by the time we get to verse 10, we understand that what, what, what this passage is, is doing is trying to show us that the new life that's possibly ours in Christ uh, is a life of, of, of richness, of goodness. And so I'm going to take us through three things. One is the ruinous work of people. Secondly, the creative work of God. And then finally, the beautiful work of God through people. That's, I think, some of what good works are about. But I want to begin with the ruinous work of people, just because the passage begins, frankly, saying, look, the world is not functioning well. We're, we're in a dire situation. And, and goodness is not how we function. This is actually new for us, real, true goodness. And so if you think about the way the world functions, God has, uh, God, we meet God in the Bible as a creator, as one who orders things, who, who uh, fills with life, and then calls us to, to follow him, uh, to imitate him. He has prepared for us uh, lives where we can do good things. And yet, something has gone wrong where the wisdom and the skill that we have is used, uh, the, the, the potential that we have to do good is often used to do harm with the same skill set. And so if, if you were going to do an art class for a kindergarten class, you would have to make choices. You probably wouldn't want to work with oil paints. It's very expensive, but also messy and hard to clean up. You know, if they're five, you're going to need to make sure that they have a smock or some, something on that you want to put paper down, because no matter what, it's going to get messy. 
and you have to make your choices. If, if somebody wants to propose a jewelry making class and bring in hammers and, and awls and, uh, you know, all sorts of pointy things, you'd say not for the five-year-olds. They're going to poke their eyes out. They're going to smash their fingers. Uh, you have to recognize a certain limitation. Uh, so the world in which we live, that God gives us wisdom and ability to, to innovate uh, and to organize and to take positions of leadership, something goes on in the world that we, it, it exposes the danger of humanity in our, in not simply in our immaturity, but in our corruption. And so the language of verse one, uh, describing the transition of, of what's possible from how we are naturally to who we could be with the life of God in us, verse one says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that's the contrast with verse 10 of who we are now. But now because of God's grace, we are his workmanship. You were dead, but now we are workmanship. Something more profound has, is, is happening through the work of God's grace. Uh, and it's meant to bring renewal everywhere. Uh, and so in looking at these words, trespasses and sins and the concept of being dead, uh, to bring in a verse from, from a couple of chapters ahead that we'll get to in a few months, Ephesians 4.18 says that people by nature uh, are hard hearts. We're darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God. So that's the picture. The, the spirit comes into our lives. And so uh, like, a, like a branch on a vine, that, that now the life is coming through the vine and into the branch and bearing fruit. God's life is now at work in us. We were once alienated from God which is another way of saying, verse one, we were dead in our sins. If, if we were alienated from the life of God, if God's life was not within us, uh, then there wasn't God's goodness producing fruit in us, and we were dead in trespasses and sins. So the word trespass, maybe uh, you think of it as a property word, but, the, but it, appropriately so because it's a boundary word. Uh, trespasses are about boundaries, and one of the boundaries in the Bible are commandments, but commandments in the Bible are relational. So to break a commandment, if you are in covenant with God, if God wants you to walk with him, carries with it the idea of betrayal or rebellion. And so, so a trespass, a boundary uh, that gets crossed has relational implications. But I want to take a moment to say something about the word sins. Uh, it's, it's a common enough word, but most of us associate it with a religious context that maybe this is not the language of your workplace or your family interactions. Um, but, but the word sin actually was a fairly common word uh, throughout uh, biblical times. And the, the basic concept is, is a failure to, to meet a certain goal. And so, you know, when Romans says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, there's something glorious that we're, we're not achieving, we're not connecting with. And so we don't talk about sin today, but we do talk about failure. And the interesting thing is uh, we've gone through maybe 100 or 150 years of trying to solve the guilt problem within us, thinking guilt comes because of religion. Religion identifies our wrongdoing. And so if, if we could so maybe uh, redefine morality, get rid of this guilt system, we'll be better off, we'll be free, we'll be happier. And sure enough, we don't talk a lot about guilt today, but it's interesting we talk a lot about shame. And some people will say that shame is actually much worse and much more complicated because guilt is when you do something wrong, but shame is when you think there's something wrong with you. So ironically, we've moved away from religious commandments, thinking we would be free of feeling guilty. And now there's this 
unstated morality that we're negotiating with that we're all seem to be falling short of. And rather than feeling guilty and thinking how we could fix it, we're starting to feel helplessly not good enough. And so we actually haven't progressed. We've gotten, we've redefined morality in a way that's not left us freer, but left us uh, uh, more overwhelmed, more self-loathing. And so uh, the concept of sin, if sin is a failure, it's one thing if it's a moral failure that you could fix. But we're, we're in a time that we're, we're, we're uh, trying to move away from traditional morality, and I'm not here with any agenda to, to preserve traditionalism. Um, but in the current redefining of things, uh, we're finding that now uh, failure in ways that are not moral, we experience as worse than if we had done something for which we are guilty. And so in your workplace, maybe if you're in finance, this is a really hard environment to make money. And so for your team, rather than making money, you lost money. Does that make you a bad human being? Does that make you immoral? Should you be fined, imprisoned? Do you need to come and confess that? No, maybe you need some patience or maybe you need some job skills. Uh, but why is that failure at work is not processed as simply, here's just a thing that, you know, maybe I need to switch jobs, but why am I a bad human being? Why do I not feel that I uh, have the right to exist in the earth? Because now the concept of failure, it's not moral failure, there's no grand scheme, but there's somehow, I'm processing failure as, as I'm not good enough. There's something so problematic with me and in an isolating, unique way that I can't move on. This is what Ephesians is trying to highlight to say that the problem within humanity and in our world is quite complex. Uh, and God is coming in uniquely to lead us through. And if we're not following, if we're not uh, trusting him, we're gonna find that we're overwhelmed, that the alternative, uh, is, it, while initially may sound more freeing, is actually much worse. And so, so before we get to good works, we have to understand that, that we don't really have clarity on what goodness is. And that leaves us confused about whether or not something is good and whether or not we're doing something good for a good reason or if it's a good thing that we're doing for some uh, complicated reason. And so as we think about what does it mean to actually have true change, to, to become the kinds of people that are living Free, freer lives uh, that are doing truly good things. Um, here's two examples of, of kinds of ways that we get stuck because we live in a world that, uh, that moves towards death, where rather than filling and encouraging with life, we're, we're, we're dying together and, and dragging each other down. One type uh, that I'll talk about just as an example is the perfectionist type. So um, it is good to have goals, to have uh, aspirations to, to, to be in tune with where things can be fixed. Those are valuable skills. We need them for life. But for the perfectionist, um, the ability to see what's not good enough means you're always seeing everywhere that nothing is good enough. Uh, and that could become quite a problem because uh, if, if nothing is good enough, then if I try to do this and can't get it perfect, now the incentive to do it is not there. And so perfectionism ironically leads to procrastination. I don't, I don't want to get started because as soon as I start, I'm going to start failing. 
And, and this concept of maybe we're free of guilt, but, the, but the, the lens through which we always find flaws, you know, Jesus says, by the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, if, if everything you're seeing around you is not good enough, at the end of the day, you have to be alone with yourself. And you can't not apply that lens to yourself. And so you may feel relief when you're with people that are not good enough because you feel for a period better than them. At some point, you are going to have to grapple with falling short of your own standard. And that's the thing is that within perfectionism, there's a system of beliefs. So the, the self-loathing that comes out of it, that seems just like a logical conclusion, really is a function of your belief system. And it's not arbitrary um, because you may be able to say, look, you know, I could look back to certain things in life that I really wanted and I didn't achieve. And so there's evidence that I'm the kind of person that doesn't always get what I want. And maybe there was a voice in my life that was constantly saying, you're not good enough. And, uh, and that voice I've learned to say is actually true. But at the end of the day, those are your beliefs. It's not fundamentally true. And you probably know that it's still worth aspiring to do things. But, but unfortunately for some people, um, giving your energy to do something of value has as a function of giving you relief from the pain of existence. But then eventually there's a going back to that baseline, which is at the end of the day, I'm not good enough. Uh, those are beliefs. They're hard beliefs to change, but they're beliefs that, that strike many of us as based on the data of our lives. And the Bible is saying, but you, you have insufficient data. So don't take that one critical voice that was in your life. Don't take those two or three humiliating moments of failure and think that they're determinative of your future. Is change possible? Of course, in theory, but my belief is that change for me is unlikely. It's a different paradigm. Good works are not going to flow out of that. Jesus calls us out of something of that way of thinking into something different. I'll, I'll use a second example of, of a prideful approach to life. If, if the perfectionist never feels good enough and is maybe a bit of a pessimist, there are some people that are prideful enough that they tend to be optimistic because they're not always in tune with reality. And therefore, there's a sense in which as long as they're being encouraged and flattered, they're motivated and they're excited, uh, but not always really in tune with what's going on. And so in the same way that humility is, is an attribute we should have, but self-loathing is not humility. So the perfectionist needs to understand that, that hating yourself is not humility. The prideful person, being confident is not a problem. Uh, wanting to achieve good things is not a problem, but, but pride brings with it things like entitlement. And it's entitlement that's an example of one corrupting piece within a prideful life, where it's not simply that you want to do great things, but you assume that they have to happen. Um, and, and therefore, there's a disconnect with reality because your, your view is that the world needs to organize around you for you in order to feel satisfied and excited. And to a certain degree, you could surround yourself with a person or two that's maybe kind of nice, maybe an encourager or a supporter, and, and they're willing to allow you to, to call the shots on everything. And some people are gifted enough that you could start an organization and gather a team around you and everybody will work around you. You wouldn't think that you could ever, with an attitude like that, achieve a place like being president of the United States. But in smaller places, there are people that may have a prideful uh, uh, sense, a sense of entitlement that want to organize uh, everything around themselves. But what happens 
is the reality is uh, the world is not organized around any one of us. And so as much energy and optimism as, as you have, there's the constant frustration of the world not working as you feel entitled that it should work. And therefore, there's an underlying anger that has to be part of what otherwise could be an optimistic life because there's anger at, at the world that does not work as it should in your favor. And so how do good works come out of that life, a, a life that's lived disconnected from the reality that the world doesn't revolve around any one of us? If the world revolves around me, what, what is the extent to the good that I could bring into the world? And so um, the gospel perspective is meant to change those things, to, uh, to, to transform the entirety of how we live, uh, giving us a new identity, new values, new goals that then are fruitful so that a goodness in us produces good things around us. And so the contrast here, you know, Paul being frank and saying, look, we were dead in the trespasses and sins and the ways that we once walked, um, like the rest of mankind. So do you, are, are you currently feeling like you are uniquely, uh, in an isolated way, a kind of failure that's different than others? Sure, there's hope for people, but there's not hope for me. Verse three says, but this is among whom we all once lived. This is, this is true, all of us are falling short. All of us are failing. All of us are overstepping the appropriate boundaries. And while that is to be discouraging for all of us, it shouldn't in an isolated way to, that anyone should think there's no hope for me. If there's no hope for uh, any of us, um, what we're told here is that actually there is hope for all of us, not by what we will, will do, but what God offers to us. And therefore, um, don't allow your perfectionist tendencies to, to, uh, to isolate you where you feel uh, completely stuck in a corner. This is an issue that we're all going to deal with. We all are falling short. We're all failing. But God is doing something to change that. On the other hand, though, if you are sort of a prideful, entitled per person, uh, come to understand the nature of grace. It's better than your own performance. Verse 8 says, this is not your own doing. No one should boast of this. And so, so you don't want to continue to foster uh, that thinking. We don't want to foster our, our inability to be critical of everything. We don't want to foster our sense of entitlement. We want to recognize that God is calling us into a newly formed life. And so, so I want to move from, from this, this problematic perspective into now the second thing, the creative work of God. The second point here, the creative work of God. And I'm using the language work. Um, because of the language workmanship in verse 10, we are God's workmanship. The, the relationship of the creator and the creature God makes, we are made. Uh, and on the one hand, that, that means there's a distinction. There's, there are things about God that are utterly unique. God's uh, om omnipresence, his, uh, his omniscience, his, his power. Um, those things are unique to God, but there are things about God that he puts into the creatures, into his work, those who he has made, God's wisdom and truth and his compassion and his understanding. Uh, those kinds of things are, are meant to be the nature of God's workers, uh, his workmanship that uh, by analogy imitate God in the world. There are things about God that we are then to make things. We are to do works, create work, uh, pull together things that don't currently exist but are good. That's part of the task of humanity. So we are workmanship. And uh, what, what 
what we're told here is that is that the alienated life where you don't have the life of God in you, um, it doesn't give you the energy for that. It doesn't give you the insight, but it also doesn't give you the goodness to be able to do whatever it is you're doing, whatever your current sphere of responsibility is, to do it faithfully, knowing that um, the measure of it is not what other people think or how much credit you get or how much you get paid for it, but that there's something much more deep that can be part of your life that will bear fruit. But for that to happen, what we're told is we need something of the, the creative work of God um, to bring us to completion. So, so we are not yet who we will be. We are in transition. But Paul here highlights the essential transition from being isolated, dead, apart, uh, overwhelmed by our corrupt desires to being called into life with God, coming alive, having goodness at work in you, being free over time of the things that drag us down. And so that message, it's by grace you've been saved. It's God's work to come in and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot, uh, the dead cannot get themselves out of their graves. God needs to do something for us. And so we're reminded of the redemptive work of our creator to continue to do his creative work to renew us, to refresh us. So in, in highlighting that, I, I want to point out two things from this passage that I think are, are helpful to us in the theme of good works, but also I suspect helpful to us just, uh, or certainly to some of you where you are this week. In verse five, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And, and this is the nature of grace when he says it's not by works, it's not anything that you could boast of. The, the question is, what, I, what can I do to, to draw God's positive attention? What can I do to make up for the wrong that I've done so that God will be pleased and will welcome me? And, and the Bible is saying that it's, that's the wrong paradigm. That's, that's the course of this world. That's how we naturally think. Um, you need a new way of thinking. What's surprising is that it's even when we were dead in our trespasses. It's not because we got it together. It's not because we figured it out. The nature of God's grace is so profound that it was while we were still in this miserable estate, while we were transgressors, while we were failing, it is as we are still sinning that God sets his love on us and shows us grace. And so we were once part of the course of this world, alienated from the life of God. Even in that situation, verse 5, when we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. And, and that's the emphasis in Ephesians. You're out there on your own and you're withering, um, but you're called to be united to Christ and, and the life of God in him because he is the one bringing together God's plan for history. We were once off dying on our own, withering away from, uh, from our friends, family, work, whatever the case is, our health. But now by God's grace, we are made alive together with Christ. And it's that with that's important because the message is uh, he came to us even when we were in our sins and he joined with us even in our death. That's why the cross is so important. Jesus comes to us in our failings and he experiences the suffering of death so that he could make us from who we were to who we are now, formerly dead in our sins, but now alive with Christ. So Jesus who is now exalted, Jesus who has been raised, Jesus who is now vindicated, uh, your life, if it is connected to his, now has that story to it. It's a different story. It's a story 
of grace, of love, of having received, of hope, of a future, of the possibility of change. Here's a second thing that I'll point out from this passage in verse seven, speaking of God's grace, so profound that it, because it's so far into our world, the more we could understand how it's by God's grace through faith. It's not our faith that saves us as if faith becomes a work. Are you believing enough? You're probably not, but God's grace is enough. So God extends his grace to you and you're called to trust him, to make those your new beliefs. And those beliefs, then when, when they firm up in us, um, give us that sense of the immeasurable riches of God's grace, verse seven, in kindness toward us in Christ. So this is the whole of Ephesians. Everything to us comes in Christ. Jesus is whom he sent, Jesus who calls us, Jesus who's united with us. Now that we're united with him, um, uh, the immeasurable riches of God's grace comes to us, towards us in kindness. And I wanted to pause and highlight the word kindness because of all of the theologically rich words in this section, it's one that could go by us. We're talking about trespass and sin. We're talking about grace. We're talking about love. We're talking about hope. We're talking about riches. All these things, even in just these 10 verses, that kindness, it seems kind of ordinary. It, it seems like people who are, who are socially polite because they're afraid to maybe share what they're thinking. And so they're very nice on the outside, but inside have certain things going on. That's, that's about what, maybe what we think of kindness. But when Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians, peace, joy, patience, kindness, uh, kindness, you know, you could fake being polite, but kindness, where there's a goodness in you, that is not hard to fake. That's the work of the Spirit. This is one of the characteristics of God, who's so rich in grace that when he comes to us, he comes towards us even while we're trespassing and dead in sin, and he comes to us sending Christ in kindness. And I'm highlighting that because these days we are able to fake a new morality. We're arguing largely in the culture about who's right and who's wrong. And typically what we mean is we're right, you're wrong. Um, rather than inspiring us to be better versions of ourselves, um, I wonder if the word kindness feels like such a foreign concept for you after the last couple of years, that there's something healing to the soul to think that God in his perfection and holiness comes to me, but he's so rich in grace that he comes with kindness. He comes to me even while I'm doing things that would offend him. And he wants me to put those things aside because not only are they offending him, but they're killing me. And it's the nature of God's kindness that he's so rich in grace that, that he sends Jesus to share in our suffering so that together with him, we would share in his life. That's the nature of the creative work of God, the God who is thoroughly good. And, and what we're invited is, is make that your life, make, make that what shapes how you understand who you are, how it reframes your past and how you've lived, how it sets for you a trajectory of what's possible for the future, and how you understand whether or not this life is ultimately worth living. There's an immeasurable rich, uh, number, uh, amount of riches of grace in God. They come to us in Christ through God's kindness. And therefore, Grace is so important to talk about. The church uh, often talks about it. I think one of the places that I've, uh, one of the stories that, that I've heard um, more frequently than others. So I imagine if you're a churchgoer, you've, you've heard the Les Miserables uh, sort of uh, illustration. It's an oldie, but a goodie. I, I think in my 21 years of preaching, this might be my first time, but I think I 
hear it five times a year hearing other preachers. If you're not familiar with the story of Les Mis, um, you have a, a figure, John Valjean, who um, gets out of prison and he comes out hardened. Uh, it's been really difficult. And now he's, he's functioning at a time and in a place where his having been in prison is alienating. People want nothing to do with him. And so in his desperation, he, he goes to, to knock on this door of a priest who's actually a bishop, uh, a guy who lives um, a, for literature, uh, quite a, a commendable picture of clergy, of somebody who really lives a, a simple, faithful life, who's humble, who welcomes this person in uh, and feeds him. And he feeds him on with, with, uh, in this otherwise simple place where he has this nice silverware um, and gives him a meal. And then as the story goes on, he shows him kindness, but, the, but John Valjean, as he leaves, decides to steal the silverware and, and maybe some plates or something uh, and, and is caught. So, so there it is, a picture of, of grace and depravity. I'm desperate, you help me, and yet, because I'm desperate, I, I need to do something and I'm gonna rationalize it, I steal. So he leaves the police, catch him, bring him back uh, to the priest to say, we found not only your missing silverware, uh, but the person who took it. And it's that the surprising response of the priest who says, not only did you take my silverware, which I gave you, but you forgot to take the candlesticks, apparently the, the two other things that, that you know, the priest had of value. Um, so there he is with the cop, um, you forgot to take the candlesticks, which I also gave you. Thank you that you came back. Now, go with all of these things. And, and it's such an encouraging picture of grace because it's so different. But it actually is, it's one thing to read about it. It's one thing to talk about it in this setting. Because we're talking about us not being good enough for God. Go back and read that story and see if it really warms your heart. I suspect a lot of you would, on the one hand, feel like actually, this is unfair. Like if this guy showed up at my door after I fed him and he stole my silverware, I would grab the candlestick, but the cop would need to hold me from hitting him in the head with it. You know, that, that's what you do. Like I showed you kindness and this is how you repay my kindness by stealing my stuff. So now you just need to learn from, from life. Go back to prison and see, come back in another 20 years and knock on my door and, and see if I'm still here. That's natural to us. But, you know, the way the story plays out, the story's so moving because actually here's a guy who received kindness, is very hardened, steals from the person who, who did something nice for him. But then in that moment when, when he was afraid to be caught, he showed him even more grace and it changed his life. And so from a utilitarian perspective, a pragmatic perspective, we think, no, actually, as much as I want to punish the wrongdoer, I'm still going to do the nice thing because that's how you change society. But then you're like, but this is a book. The chance that the guy who stole the silverware of the guy that was helpful to him would no doubt be very relieved in front of the cop that he was now set free and would be very thankful. But um, a month later, is that person not going to go back to the life of crime? Um, it's an unlikely story that somebody would show that much grace and that somebody would receive it would actually have their life transformed by it. I think the reason the story speaks to the hearts of many who have read that story is because we want that kind of reality to be true of the world in which we live. We, we know that, that punishment is necessary. We know that people will continue to betray. We know that sometimes we're so hardened that no matter how kind you are to us, we won't change. 
But is it possible that actually there's a real depth of grace? Is it, is it not possible that actually somebody could be loved one more time and that time is the transformative time? And that's why Christians resonate with that story because the picture of the Bible is God is so much more gracious than you can imagine. And there's that, that language, even while we were dead in our trespasses. God is so much more gracious than we could imagine. And it creates the conviction that we are so more so much more stubborn than we should be. How much kindness does God need to display to us that we would then not have such a vision for goodness that we would say, I, I want that. I want that to be how I live. And yet the kindness that comes continually towards us, today is a day where you are here to be reminded, God invites you. Don't, don't walk away, but draw nearer. It's, a, it's another installment of God's kindness. And so in God's kindness, there is the possibility of, of a different way of life, of true change. And, and one of the things it means is that it allows Christians to remain with a complex identity. Uh, we're not good at that. We don't like feeling not good enough. We don't like imperfection. We don't like when the world isn't working as we should, but, but that's reality. So God has not yet completed the work in us, but we don't need to be overwhelmed by discouragement because of the riches of God's grace. We can say, look, I'm somebody that did all sorts of things, and, and it's so woven into who I am that these are my patterns. But fundamentally, I believe that's who I was. That now, because of the life in Christ, I may still, that may be my thought, my heart, my desire, and occasionally, because of my weakness, my actions. But that no longer defines me. That's who I once was, but now we are those who have been made alive in Christ. And so that contrast of verse 1, this is who you were, to verse 10, but this is who we are. You're now brought into a new family, a new community. You're given a new identity, and it creates new possibilities. Is it immediate, instant, quick, and easy? No. God is doing his creative, formative work in you, but it's a work where he's, he's removing the sin that is, is uh, covering his image in you, and he's bringing to light the goodness uh, that he's weaving together within you, and therefore it should be natural coming out of this uh, that God would do some work through us. And so here's the last thing, what I'm calling the beautiful work of God through his people. Uh, when it says we are God's workmanship, um, some, some people who I think have meditated on that word poema, work, workmanship, have talked about that as work of art. We are now God's work of art. There's something that God has invested. There's a, there's a beauty. There's something God is doing redemptively. Not only did he make us, but he's, he's still molding us and perfecting us so that we would shine forth something of his greatness. And therefore, verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ. And that's where we really get this sense of, of God pulling things together. Who are you? What is your story? How does this fit? Well, God is doing everything created in Christ, and you're an important part of that uh, if you're in Christ. And so he's creating something in Christ for good works. And if your faith is in Christ and you're part of that now, you are called to share in it. And so, um, you know, we have these cycles that we go through based on our our goals. And so something, uh, something will poke you, the language we use these today is trigger you um, to, to, um, to a response to a choice that normally doesn't align with our stated goals. And so, you know, you, you fail at something or you're sitting down studying and you're not grasping the material and you're afraid you're, you're not going to do well on the exam, or you have some kind of interaction with somebody that just throws you out of sorts. 
And, and whatever you do is you try to manage the difficulty of just existing with discomfort, which is one of the life skills we need. One of the ways we've managed it is by distracting ourselves with things that, that don't align with our goals. So, so we reach for the unhealthy food, we look to the pornography, we wind up venting and slandering people and gossiping, or we wind up, wind up doing any number of things that then the result is always the same, regret. And so we feel stuck in these cycles. It, the good works become a new goal. It's not that I need to achieve things. It's not that I need to impress anybody. It's the word good in there where you say, there's actually goodness that I want to be part of my existence. And so in the current moment where I don't feel good enough, where I'm not experiencing goodness, what choices am I going to make? And that's where having new goals to know that, that I could live my life to shine forth some, some, something that witnesses the, the goodness of God in me. Now in this moment, I'm not feeling it. I'm feeling like the old self. I'm feeling like I've already crossed the line and I'm stuck in it. And this is where this comprehensive identity comes in and says, but remember who you were and remember you don't have to do this. And, and, and remember the grace that is extended to you. Remember the kindness of God. So then what does it look like to stay in this situation and make choices that are different from how you've always done it? Uh, and there's possibility of change. It's not going to be every time. It's not going to be instant. It's not going to be easy. But, but we now have new goals. We have a new foundation. We can form new habits. And so we don't need to do it in order to earn God's favor. We don't need to do it to provide the assurance that I'm currently okay because I'm doing these things. We need to do it because it's part of the life God invites us into. Our, do you want goodness in your life? Do you recognize that there's a lot that you learn to do that are, is not feeding or fostering that? So, so are you now doing life with Christ? And, and then you become a kind of a, a work of art, a, a testimony of something different, not of your old habits and pattern, uh, patterns, not of your own ingenuity or, or goals, but, but something of the goodness of, of what God has prepared for you to do. You go through life and you recognize here's a situation where it's enjoyable to do this great thing, and here's a situation where it's really hard. But where is God, and is God with me? And therefore, how do I choose in this situation to do what would produce good in this situation? As I was reading for, uh, uh, to prepare for this, I came across a story of somebody who was a student at Cambridge at a time where they commissioned a uh, painting for the president. And he was a student there, and so it was the president of his college. So uh, he was there at the unveiling, a little gathering that they had with, with the students in the college. And, and he shared uh, just a snippet of the president's speech which very appropriately so is meant to honor the artist. So there is this unveiling of this person that they're seeking to honor. But, but, but what he remembered, this statement from the president after they unveiled the painting, he said, you know, in the future, when people walk by this painting, they're not going to ask, who is that man? They're going to ask, who painted that picture? You know, that's what he was saying. He, he was trying to say, this is a wonderful likeness of me. <laughs> uh, but look at the wisdom and the skill of the one who made this. Something, the more you like this picture, the more you should be impressed with the one who made it. And when Paul says you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that you would walk in them, he's prepared them for you. There's something about the freedom of your life where you don't walk around thinking everyone's looking at you to admire you or to look down on you. Uh, but that goodness that's in you now allows you to walk and say, uh, there's, the, there's the course of this world, and I'm not going to walk in it. I'm going to walk in the ways that God has prepared. And if I'm doing something good, uh, it's going to be bigger than just what I could do in this moment. But people are going to wonder about 
the one who made me, the one who is at work in me, the one whose goodness is now evidencing itself by the fruit of my life. And so I want to encourage you, um, this week you will have good situations, challenging situations. There is opportunity for goodness. Goodness, it has its own reward. It doesn't matter what kind of outcome you will get. Uh, it is just good to have a good life, life in Christ, where you're trusting his grace, his kindness. And so what are you going to get to do this week? Um, whatever it is, do good things. If your job is to study, study. If your job is to say something encouraging, say something encouraging. If your job is to correct somebody, just do it with goodness. But, uh, but the word's prepared a week for us. I don't know what's coming, but we will have the opportunity to show the power of the spirit in our lives by choosing differently, by showing that goodness is good. And so I want to encourage you to walk in that. Let me pray for us. Uh, our Father, it, it is a marvel that you are so gracious. Here at Emmanuel, we talk about it a lot. Uh, and yet how many of us really know what we're talking about? The patience, the kindness you show us, and, and, and we still get stuck so easily. And yet you are merciful, you are kind, your ways are not our ways, that, uh, that even if you loved us when we were apart from you, we could be confident if we are with you that you still love us now. And so Lord, if any is here, if any are among us feeling apart from you, feeling like they've wandered, that they don't know you, that they're stuck, we pray this would be a day of grace, a day of renewal, a day uh, where you would gather uh, many closer to yourself. Lord, for those of us who are wavering, who, who, um, who know these things to be true, but we're not feeling it, or we're just aware of our failings this week, Lord, renew our hearts and mind that you would show us that grace and favor, draw us closer, that we would understand that with Christ, uh, you are kind, you are merciful, and that um, your work will bear fruit in our lives. Lord, show us this week uh, some opportunity to do something that would bring us pleasure and delight, that we would see the wisdom of your ways by doing something because it's good, and by giving thanks that we did it because you have given it for us to do. Lord, give us that joy and that peace as we seek to walk with you this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.